Friends, it's good to see you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's his question for you, not mine. Do you believe this? No, like really, do you believe this? <laughs> Has your entire life been shaped around this, this new truth that you've embraced? Or do you just kind of show up at church and look good on Easter or every Sunday and live the rest of your life for you? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? He is the life. Do you believe that? If so, you'll do like Mary here and go, uh, Martha here and go tell someone about it. You'll do something about it. Now, as we begin, I want to ask a question and let you think about it for a moment. Do you find it difficult to stop long enough to consider carefully the direction of your life? Do you find it difficult to stop long enough to just be quiet with the Lord and think about the direction of your life? No headphones, no no music. I know a lot of us have screaming kids, and so this becomes very difficult to find those quiet places. But do you find it difficult to stop and think carefully, carefully about the direction of your life, about where you're headed, about what you're doing, about what your life is about. Let's be honest, a lot of us are just trying to survive. <laughs> We're just trying, I told someone the other day, like, I'm trying to get to 8 o'clock every night. Because <laughs> at 8 o'clock I can lay down and I can talk to my wife and pass out. Do you ever stop long enough to think carefully about the vision that you have for your life, about the mission you have for your life, about the direction, the aim, the purpose of your life? What is it? What is your life about? What is your life about? What are you living for? What are you doing with these few years and decades we have on this planet before we stand before the God who created us? What are we doing with these moments that God has given us? What if I told you that in mercy, Jesus simplified the lives of his followers by giving them a clear and understandable vision for their lives? What if I told you that Jesus has helped us tremendously by telling us clearly what we should be about? And what if I told you that aligning your life to his vision for your life is actually where you'll find life? Jesus himself said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if you're looking for life, the place to find it is in losing your life for Jesus. That's what Jesus said. You may ask, well, as long as I'm a pretty good person, why should I care about Jesus' vision for my life? I mean, doesn't he want to just basically want me to be a good person and keep my nose clean, pay my taxes and raise my kids and go to work? Doesn't he just kind of want me to do these basic things? Well, yes and more. What is Jesus' vision for our lives? You might ask, well, I don't, I don't know, but I want to know. I want to care about his vision for my life because 
If what we're singing about this morning is true and he's alive, I'm going to see him one day and I want to do everything I can right now to make that a glorious moment. Not a moment full of guilt or shame or embarrassment or regret. I think the reason we should care about Jesus' vision for our life is because he's alive. Do you believe this? He is actually alive. He's not an idea. He's a living person sitting at the right hand of God right now, ruling over the entire universe and your entire life. So, if he, this Christ, has a vision for our lives, then it makes sense that we would want to line our lives up with that vision. Because he died, he's alive, he's reigning. What if I die today? And showed up at your house Tuesday morning and said, hey, remember me? I'm back. <laughs> and then I said, hey, oh, by the way, uh, death was terrible, but God has put me at his right hand, and I'm in charge of everything now. And I know what you should do with your life. Whatever I say next after that, you would never forget. It'd be, it'd be unforgettable. You'd probably have lots of questions, like, well, John, are you really alive? Can I touch you? Are you a ghost? You'd have many questions, but you would also start to reevaluate everything in light of what I told you you should do with your life. If I told you that God put me in charge of everything and that I'm going to be with you all the time in some mysterious way, I think you would slowly but eventually drop everything and start to line your life up with this vision for your life that I gave you. Now, I'm not going to do that, by the way. I'm not going to... I might die today. I don't know. I'm not going to rise on Tuesday morning and be in your house. But for the Christian, this illustration has actually happened for you, to you. This has already happened to you. If you're a follower of Jesus... You believe that Jesus died and rose on the third day and then told his followers exactly what they should do. So, if you believe that Jesus is alive today, then your life has a vision, has a direction, has a purpose, has an aim, and it's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It's not left for you to figure out with a counselor. Jesus has told you what you should do with your life. The question becomes for us this morning, is the vision that we have for our life shaped by Jesus or shaped by us? Something is shaping the vision you have for your life. Someone is shaping it. Maybe it was the way you were raised. You know, you were just raised to be a certain way, and so that's what you're going to do. Maybe it's grandparents or friends or parents putting undue pressure on you to do this, that, or the other. Someone is shaping the, the vision that you have for your life. Is it Jesus or is it someone else? Find a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 28, if you would. Matthew chapter 28, that's page 784 if you're using those black uh, pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you as our gift. Matthew chapter 28 
That's page 784. And in this final chapter of Matthew's gospel, we read about Jesus' resurrection. And then we read about the vision or mission that he gives to his followers. So I want to look at both of these things in turn. First, we'll look at Jesus' resurrection. And then we'll look at Jesus' marching orders for those who believe in his resurrection. Okay? Sound like a plan? Let's begin in verse 1, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and its clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up. I love this. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 9 makes me think of Don Francisco's song, He's Alive. Anybody with me on that? I listened to it all the way to church this morning. You need to look it up if you have no idea what I'm talking about. There's this line where he says, the risen Jesus shows up to Peter, and Peter just falls on his knees and grabs Jesus' feet and weeps. And it says, all of his fears are swept away, and perfect peace comes. That's what's happening here. But of course, not everyone believes that these accounts are historically accurate and true. Interestingly, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus coming back from the grave, literally. So that's four four different historical documents that tell us what happened to Jesus after he died. We don't have that many sources for a lot of the things we believe and learn in our history classes. But we read this. And a lot of us wonder, is this actually true? Did a dead man literally come out of his tomb? Some people will deny the reality of the resurrection, stating objections like this. Oh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. You see, Jesus just passed out, and then he was buried alive. But they didn't know he was still alive. Many Muslims believe this. But think of it. After being crucified, if you know anything about crucifixion, Jesus would have been covered head to toe with wounds and blood and holes in his body. And he would have been unrecognizable. What do you think would have happened if a a guy who'd been through that, passed out, woke up, stumbled out of his grave somehow, and then went and proclaimed himself to be the risen Lord of life while he's covered in wounds and blood and sores, I'm not sure that's going to convince anyone. The view that he didn't really die is illogical, in my opinion. 
Others will say Jesus died. He did die, but his appearances after his death to his followers were, were just hallucinations. They were just hallucinating. They weren't seeing a real risen Jesus. They were seeing something that wasn't real. According to the American Psychological Association, a hallucination is a perception of something that isn't actually present. A hallucination is a mental event. But the thing about a mental event or hallucination is you can't share them. Are you thinking what anyone else next to you is thinking right now? Are y'all having the same mental events? Maybe some similarities, but not the same. We can't share mental events with someone else. Since Jesus is said to have appeared to groups of people, the 12 and then 500 people at one time, the hallucination theory requires that each disciple experience an individual hallucination at the same time and in the same mode. In other words, a visual hallucination, which is impossible. The hallucination theory, though, doesn't explain the empty tomb. So then you need two theories. You need one theory to explain his appearances and then another theory to explain the empty tomb. Everyone has to do something with the empty tomb. The preaching of Jesus' resurrection began in Jerusalem. Where was Jesus buried? Just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So this is the last place that his resurrection, the preaching of his resurrection, would have begun if his grave was still occupied. All the authorities had to do was take an afternoon's walk to his grave and provide his body. But they couldn't do that. Look at the text again, verses 11 through 15. Tell us what they did instead. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if he comes, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So these leaders paid off these soldiers and told them to begin circulating a false narrative because the tomb was actually empty. So they had to make up a story to explain why the tomb was empty. The problem with their story, lots of problems, is that it assumes that these disciples, these fishermen, could overpower a guard of Roman soldiers heavily armed soldiers. This story assumes, also assumes that these disciples then spent the rest of their lives spreading false information and then willingly dying for something they knew to be false. It's often said that liars make bad martyrs. We have to do something with the empty tomb. You have to do something with the appearances of Jesus. Some, though, will take a... uh, a broader approach, and they'll just say, no, the resurrection can't happen because miracles are impossible. But a worldview that begins with a closed universe where the only thing that exists is matter or materialism, a materialistic worldview will always end by denying the resurrection. But if you at least allow for the possibility of God's existence, then anything is possible. So it's a matter of your presuppositions. If you, if you start the conversation assuming that the only thing that exists is what we can see, taste, touch, and feel, you know, matter things, material things, 
then obviously supernatural things aren't going to happen. But if you come with a more liberal mindset, a more open mindset, and say, okay, there, there might be a God who created the world, then there's a possibility. There's at least a possibility that Jesus rose from the dead if God created the universe. Philosopher Richard Pertill says it this way. He says, quote, We cannot settle whether miracles occur by looking at the ordinary course of nature. We must ask what kind of universe we live in. This is the more fundamental question. What do you think? What kind of universe do we live in? Pertill says, this is a philosophical, not a scientific question. So, if we live in a universe that God created, then the resurrection of Jesus is at least possible, plausible, and I would argue because of the evidence, highly probable. So let me ask you again. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that a dead man came back to life? Do you believe that a dead man came out of his tomb? And they didn't open the tomb, by the way, to let Jesus out. He was already raised. They opened the tomb to go in and see where he was, see if he was there. If you don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead, then you are not yet a Christian. But the promise is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is not cognitive head knowledge. You can assent, in other words, you can assent to all the facts. You can say, yeah, that's good evidence. I think I agree. Notice what Paul said in Romans 10, 9. You have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, you've got to embrace this with everything you are. It's not just an idea that you kind of check off like, okay, he raised, whatever. I'm going to do my thing now. No. Do you believe in your heart, your soul, everything about you, that Jesus is not dead? That he's alive right now. He's alive. If you believe he's literally alive right now, and you believe that with all of your might, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. His resurrection is historically attested, multiply attested. There's good evidence for it. And if you believe it, it has massive implications for your life. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything in your life has to change. Everything in your life has to change. If Jesus defeated death, Listen carefully, please. If Jesus defeated death, there's no dark thing in you or around you that can't be defeated. Do you believe that? If Jesus rose from the dead, there's no dark thing in you or around you that can't be defeated, that he can't defeat. Resurrection power isn't restricted to a borrowed grave outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, The immeasurable greatness of God's power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead is given to us who believe. So resurrection power can be yours through faith. So this morning we need to linger at the empty tomb. We need to remember that whatever we're facing, Jesus is greater. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than your suffering. He's greater than your sickness, your chronic pain. He's greater than your unbelief. He's greater than your shame, your guilt, your fears, your anxieties, 
your embarrassment, your exhaustion. He's greater than your marital problems. He's greater than your dissatisfaction with your job and your fear for the future. He's greater than wayward children, loneliness, depression, despair, doubts, and death. If Jesus is alive, there's no dark thing in us or around us that he can't defeat. So we need to linger at the empty tomb. We need to listen to what it says. Are you listening? The empty tomb says that God flexed his muscles to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To meet our deepest needs. The empty tomb says that God sees us, hears us, loves us, has the power to save us and desires to walk with us through whatever we're walking through. You need to linger at the empty tomb this morning. He is not there. He is risen. Do you believe this? The empty tomb says that we don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to fear what the Supreme Court is going to do to churches one day. We don't have to fear what people will think of us when we share the gospel. We don't have to fear about if we're going to get married or not. We don't have to fear about when we're going to die or how we're going to die. We don't have to fear about disease. We don't have to fear about death. We don't have to fear about any of that stuff. We just sang this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he, uh, just because he lives. The empty tomb says we don't have to be afraid of anything. I wonder if your fears have been swept away. Friend, have your fears been swept away through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or do you have a paralyzing sense of fear of the unknown, fear of the future, fear of this, fear of that, fear of everything? The empty tomb means that we don't have to be afraid. Now, Let's go on to the last part of the chapter. Jesus rises to life. The end of chapter 28 tells us that he sends, he sends his followers on a rescue mission. Uh, he sends them out on a mission for life, a mission to spread hope to a dying world, a world suffocating with sin and dying in darkness, Matthew 28:16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 18 says that because of his obedience to the Father, Jesus now has all authority in the universe. Jesus' supreme authority over the universe means that we can't linger at the empty tomb in awe and amazement and then walk away ambivalent about what he wants us to do. His resurrection doesn't allow us to ignore his commission. Jesus tells us exactly what we're supposed to do in these following verses. Jesus gives us the vision for our life that we so desperately need and want. He says in verse 19, make disciples of all nations. I want us to consider the phrase make disciples this morning. Next week we're going to look at the all nations part. Make disciples in the original language is a command, an imperative. Jesus is saying do this and if you don't do this, you're disobeying me. That's in the original language. It's a command, an imperative, not a suggestion, not a participle, but an imperative. You must do this. You must make disciples of all 
nations. Now he's speaking to all his disciples, not just these 11 here on this mountain. He promises to be with his disciples, verse 20, to the end of the age. So this command is for his disciples until the end of the age. Guess who we are? His disciples while we wait for the end of the age. So this command applies to us. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, first let's talk about what a disciple is. You can't make something if you don't know what it is. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Amen? Is that clear? Is that simple enough? A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who understands that they've sinned against the God who made them, that they have no hope on their own to get right with God again, and they look at the cross of Christ as their only hope for the forgiveness of their sins, cry out to Him in faith and turn away from their sins. And they commit themselves to follow Him to the day they die. A follower of Jesus commits to walking with Jesus long term. This is where we've gone wrong in so many of our churches. We've said, hey, you can pray this prayer and get baptized and you're good to go. It doesn't really matter how you live. Do whatever you want. You're forgiven. No, that's actually not the case. (laughs) A follower of Jesus, get this, a follower of Jesus actually follows Jesus, keeps following, very imperfectly, terribly, terribly imperfect. But they are after him day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. They don't stop following. If you stop following, you prove to not be a follower. If you're living your own life, kind of doing your own thing, you don't really think twice about it, you're not following. You're following you, not him. So a follower commits to a new life with Jesus. A new life of obedience to Jesus. Not to gain His love, but because you've already received it. So you want to obey and follow. You want to treasure Him more than anything else. You see Him as the most important thing in your life. If you aren't living this kind of life, you aren't yet a follower of Jesus. But you can. You can today repent of your sins and start following Jesus. I don't care if you're a member of the church. If you know that you haven't actually trusted Christ and turned away from your sin, you can be saved today by doing so. A follower of Jesus commits their life to Christ for the long haul. No matter what happens. No matter what happens, we keep following. We never stop following. Now, that's a disciple. How do we make these things? (laughs) He says make these things. Make disciples. Make disciples. You disciples, go out there and make some more. What does that mean? Well, it means intentionally helping people follow Jesus. Let me say it again. This is not rocket surgery. It means intentionally helping someone else follow Jesus. Intentionally helping someone else follow Jesus. Making disciples means making other people what you already are. It means duplicating yourself. This is the mission and vision and aim for every Christian's life. Make disciples. Christian, help other people follow Jesus. This is your call. Our elders, Nick and I, we pray often and we've worked hard to promote a culture of discipleship in our church. We want our church members to see discipleship as the normal way Christians live together in local churches and not the exception for those who have extra time on their hands. Again, who is the command for? Is it just for me? I think it's for all of us (laughs) because he says he'll be with us till the end of the age. So 
His command applies to people who are following Him to the end of the age. That's you. So discipleship is a way of life for God's people. It's not a program. It's not a curriculum. It's not a book study. It's a way of life meant to be lived out corporately or all together and personally. Let's look at these one at a time. We do discipleship corporately or all together in several ways. In a broad sense, a very broad sense, we disciple each other through gathering together for worship on Sunday mornings like this. We come to church to encourage, exhort, and edify one another. We come to hear from God's Word. We come to sing. We come to pray with the church. We come to help other people follow Jesus when we come ready to hear from the Word. And we come to help other people follow Jesus when we come saying, hey, you know what? I know I've got to be somewhere, but I'm going to stay as long as I can to talk to as many people as I can because they need help following Jesus and I need help following Jesus. So we don't just parachute in and parachute out. We come to serve and edify and exhort and encourage and grow together. This is discipleship, helping each other follow Jesus. We can attend Sunday morning training classes. These are great opportunities to build relationships in a context of teaching, prayer, and fellowship. Our training classes are a great opportunity for discipleship. Bring someone with you. Plan to discuss the material after the class. Right now I'm finishing up a course on church history. I know you're like, boring. Well, you don't understand where you are or where you're going until you understand where you came from. But nonetheless, church history is what we're finishing up. In a couple weeks, John Hudlow is going to teach on singleness. Okay? So that's going to be fun if you're single or not. These training classes are designed to get you together around the Word, in fellowship, in prayer, to help each other follow Jesus. Another way we do corporate discipleship is simply through prayer. Through prayer, the PHBC member directory is a tool to help you pray for each member of the church. If you don't know the person uh, who you're praying for, that's okay. Just pray the scripture you read that morning over them. This morning I prayed for Keenan, Janine, Robert, and Rose. Tomorrow, Lord willing, Lanes, Latona, Lockwood, and leaders. Every day. What if just every day you prayed for a page of the directory? You're like, well, I don't know if that's really helping. You don't think prayer helps people? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like prayer, absolutely. You're calling upon Almighty God to help other people follow Jesus. That's discipleship. That's discipling. We can do other things like initiate hospitality. We can bring others into our life. We can invite visitors and new members and members we don't know very well over to our homes to get to know them. We can initiate coffee meetings and lunch meetings. All kinds of stuff. Disciples of Jesus understand that community is built, not found. You're like, I'm just really looking for a church with community. Okay, go and build it. Build it. You never stumble into community. You don't just kind of like find it. Like, oh, there it is. I found found deep and growing relationships. No, you work towards it. You build it. You pray for it. You work towards it. The command to disciple means we must proactively get out of our comfort zones and reach out to other people. Of course, discipling sometimes has to start with evangelism. They're not the same thing. But discipling will start with evangelism as this person doesn't yet know Christ. So we want them to know Christ and then help them follow Christ. And we can help each other do that as well. We can team up with people in the church to share the gospel to our friends and coworkers and family members. We can let others in the church know how we can be praying together for our evangelistic efforts. These are some of the ways we can do cultural, excuse me, corporate discipleship. 
Again, the command is to make disciples. What I'm trying to say in these last few moments is that this is not just a command to you as an individual. Coming to that, this is a command to us as a church. This should be a new way that we live together. Our goal is to help each other follow Jesus. That's our vision. Now, there are some ways we can do this individually or personally. Jesus ministered to large crowds, but he focused on a few. The relationships we build in corporate discipleship should move towards a focused discipleship with a few. Culture of discipleship is marked by initiating intentional relationships around the word, around honesty, and around prayer. This won't be easy, but this is what the gospel ministry is about. You're like, I don't know where to start, John. I'm not sure who to meet with. Well, you might start by attending a community group. We have a couple of them. Our community groups aren't mandatory for our members, but they are strategic places where you can begin discipling other believers and working together to reach the lost. Our groups are designed to create space in our lives where we can spend time applying God's word to each other's lives and praying together and just being together. I love our community group. Yes, it's hard. It's difficult. We've got three little rascals running around and it can be chaotic. But what it does is it, 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 it puts a window in our week where we we are discipling and we are being discipled. It's a structure that helps us do what we're supposed to do. It's not the end in itself. It's a means to an end. I know we often struggle to know who. Well, okay, I'm in a community group, but I don't know who to disciple. What am I supposed to do? Well, start with those in close proximity to you. Work out from there. If you're married, start helping your spouse follow Jesus. If you have kids, start with your kids. If you're single, start with your roommate or the person you work with or your neighbor. Start close and move out from there. We can't disciple everyone, but we should be discipling someone. Go and make disciples. Now, my concern here in this message, and this is for me too, by the way. I struggle with this. I often fill my schedule with all the wrong things. I don't spend enough time pouring into individuals and discipling. But my concern for me and for us is that many of us are always learning and never arriving at discipleship. I fear that we in the American church, because of the incredible access we have to solid resources, are getting spiritually fat and not exercising. We're learning more and more and more and more all the time, but not doing. We're hearers of the word, but not doers. We're listening to podcasts all week, but not helping anyone else follow Jesus. Make disciples. Yes, a disciple means you have to be a learner, but it also means that you have to help other people be learners and followers too. If we're always learning and never discipling, then who's the learning really for? Is it for you? Or is it for Jesus and others? We must be learners and we must be disciples. This is our mission. This is the clear command of Christ. Jesus told us to do this. How will people follow Jesus unless we help them? Think about it. How did you become a follower of Jesus? Wasn't there somebody? Weren't there multiple people? Who helped you? How did you start following? Did you just roll out of bed one day and become a follower? Weren't there parents and grandparents and friends and roommates and strangers and all kinds of people who helped you follow Jesus? So it must be with us. We can't complain about growing secularism in the culture 
and in the church when, frankly, we're not helping anyone follow Jesus but ourselves. This is self-centered Christianity, not biblical Christianity. Making disciples isn't a program. It's a way of life. Every single follower of Jesus is supposed to help other people follow Jesus in some way, shape, or form. It will look different for everybody, but this is the command that Jesus gave it gave us, and it's the last command he gave us, so it ranks pretty near the top on things he wants us to do. And Jesus knew that this would be hard. He knew that this would be hard. So how does he end? He commands us, make disciples. Then he says at the end of verse 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice that he says, I am with you, not I will be with you. The presence of Jesus is a current reality in the lives of his followers. Those who follow Jesus and are helping others follow Jesus will never be alone. And this promise is meant to empower our discipling ministries. Are you nervous about discipling? Jesus is with you. We're we're nervous. We don't know what to say. Jesus is with us. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know if that person's going to reject us. We don't know if that person's going to flake out. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know where to start. Jesus is with us. I am with you. People may reject our help. He's with us. People may need more help than we can give. He's with us. We don't think we're qualified to help anyone. He's with you. Jesus is alive and he's with you. The promise of his presence is meant to empower our discipling ministries. The one with complete power over the entire universe promises to be with us as we walk toward discipling relationships. No matter how it goes, we know who goes with us. Now one final word. This promise, more broadly applied, means that Jesus' presence is a present reality to all of his followers all the time. Let me close by saying we know this in our heads, but I, I fear that we struggle to embrace this with our hearts and believe it and feel it in our hearts. By His Spirit, Jesus is with us all the time. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is with you? Actually with you by His Spirit. I love how Dane Ortland ends his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says that the Christian life can be boiled down to two steps. Step one, go to Jesus. Step two, see step one. Go to Jesus. Christian, brother, sister, What's keeping you from going to Jesus? From going to Him. He's with you. What's keeping you from His embrace? You think you have to like look a certain way before He'll hold you? Are you kidding me? You think you have to like go to church for a long time and get your life cleaned up? No. You think you have to get all your questions answered? You know, start doing all the right things? The, the danger in a sermon like this with heavy exhortation, is that you're going to think, oh, i got to start doing all this stuff, and then Jesus will start liking me. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that Christ loves you in spite of all the ways we fail him. So what are we supposed to do? Go to him. Go to him. Go to him. Ortland goes on to say, if you knew his character, you would. If you really knew his heart, you'd go. If you knew Jesus' heart, you'd be flying to him. If you really understood what Jesus was like, you would just fly to him. You wouldn't care at all what's going on or how things are going. You would just fly to Jesus. 
Have you seen the light of his face? Have you seen the light of his face? Ortland says that that place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, his heart is gentle and lowly. Jesus lives with us in our anguish. He lives with us in our pain. He lives with us in our suffering. He lives with us in the dark nights of our soul. He lives with us when everything feels overwhelming. By putting your faith in Jesus, you didn't just invite him over for a visit. You invited him to take up permanent residence in your life. He's not going anywhere. Some of you, many of you have parents who bailed. Jesus will never bail. He's never leaving. He's never leaving. He's never leaving. And you're like, well, I'm in sin. I'm strained. I'm doing things I hate. I've done things I hate. I have secrets and shame and stuff that no one knows about. Jesus hears you. He understands. He sees that. And he says in Matthew 11, come to me. This is what he says. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. I don't care what you've done. Come to me. Come to me. I am what you need. So, friend, what's keeping you from going to Jesus What's keeping you from placing your faith in his sacrifice for your sins? As we go to Jesus, his heart ignites our hearts to go to others. His mercy comes to us so that it might go to others. This is what creates the mission of the church. When we go to Jesus, he gives us a new heart to go to others. So helping others understand the mercy and beauty and glory and truth of Jesus is the mission of your life, Christian. Are you living it? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please help us. Please show us what we need to see. Help us to take from your word the things that we need to take and apply them. Help us to be faithful, to make disciples right where we're at, not waiting till we have more knowledge or more opportunity or something like that. Give us grace to be intentional, to go out of our way, to help others follow you. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because you have done something in our hearts that can never be undone. You're risen and reigning, and you are present in our lives. Your mercy has come close. Your grace has changed us. So Lord, please help us to take what we've been given and be good stewards, to be good stewards, starting as close to home as possible and then moving out from there, helping as many people as we can know the grace and mercy and glory of you. Help us. Please help us. Help our church to be a, to have a culture of discipleship where helping people follow Jesus is normal and ordinary celebrated, practiced. Help us, Father. Help us. Help those who don't yet know Christ to put their faith in Him and turn from their sins today. Help them to be honest with themselves. Help them to come to Christ and find all that they need. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.